0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 18 and we'll read right through to the end of chapter 8. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God and what more can David say to you for you know your servant O Lord God because of your promise and according to your own heart you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it therefore you are great O Lord God for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears and who is like your people Israel the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them in a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen. And 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta, and from Berathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilab, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Karathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we consider God's word together, let's pray, let's ask for his mercy and his grace. Father, we heard at the beginning of this reading that David went in before you and he sat down. And so here we are this morning, we have come in before you and we are sitting down. And we ask that as we meditate upon your word, as David considered your word, We ask that you would write it upon our hearts. We ask that you would form us and shape us. You would correct us and rebuke us. You would comfort us. You would build us up by your word. And I pray that as we hear your word, we would respond in praise. We would respond in prayer. And that we would be moved to act upon your word, to live out your promises. We ask all these things. In the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we had a longer reading this morning, and there were two parts to it. The first part was chapter 7, the rest of chapter 7. And there we see David, and we heard David almost breathlessly pouring out praise, uh, praise to God and praying before God. So even though he's sitting before the Lord, it's quite, a, it's quite an active text he is excited, and he's praying, and he's praising. And then we have chapter 8, and that is a very active text. There is a lot happening in chapter 8. And one thing that I've mentioned uh, at different weeks as we've gone through 1 and 2 Samuel is that Hebrew narrative in first and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings is prophetic. This narrative history is prophetic. And in fact, in the Jewish Bible, these books are included among the prophetic books. And that tells us something about the history that we're reading. The history is theological. The history is telling us something about what God is doing. It's revealing God. We're listening for God as we read this history. We're looking for God as we read this history. We want to discern his presence. We want to discern his activity. And sometimes that's hard to do. God seems hidden in the text. And we're reading about all these names and all of these things that are happening, and we're wondering... Where's God in the midst of all of this? When we get to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're we're not having to search for God's presence. We're not having to search for his activity because God speaks. And in fact, this, this word that he gives to David is the longest extended word from the Lord that we have in the history of Israel since the time of Mount Sinai. So this is an important moment. God speaks, and we don't have to We don't have to consider or discern what is God doing in this text. We know he's speaking to us. And he makes a promise to David. He promises David. He says, I will give you a great name. I will give my people Israel a place of rest from their enemies. I will establish your throne forever. I will be with your offspring. They will be to me as sons. And they will build for me a house and I will establish your kingdom forever. He makes that promise to David. And that's where that's what we considered last week, and we ended off with that word of the Lord to David. But the question that was lingering after last week was, how's David going to respond to this? And we we see his response in this chapter. In chapter 7, he goes in, he sits before the Lord, he prays. And then he gets up and he goes out and he acts on what he's heard. And what we need to learn from this text is what David shows us about how we respond to the Word of God, how we respond to the promises of God. And so first of all, David sat before the Lord. And I really want to focus on that this morning. It's the title of the sermon, Sitting Before the Lord. He sat before the Lord. We need to sit before the Lord. He prayed. He didn't just sit before the Lord. He spoke and he prayed to God. He praised him for his promise and then he prayed that God would keep his word, that God's promise would be fulfilled. He said, God, you have said this, now do it. It's quite a bold prayer. But then he doesn't just sit before the Lord, having considered the promise of God, having prayed that God would do it, he stirred up to go out and act on the word, to act on the promise, to live in accordance with the prayer that he's just prayed. And he goes out and he he, he seeks to to live in the light of that promise. And he goes out in conquest. And this is our learning too. We not only sit before the Lord and consider his word as David did and pray that it would happen as God has said it would happen, but that stirs us up to go out then and act on the promises of God. So that's what we have to consider this morning. Sitting before the Lord, praying before the Lord, and then acting on God's promises. So first, David sat before the Lord. That's how this this text begins. King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, depending on the translation, you may miss the connection between this verse, verse 18, and verses 1 and 2. So if you just look up, you know, just look above at verses 1 and 2. I want to read that again for us. We considered this last week, but this is how the account begins. Now, when the king... And I think the ESV says was, was dwelling or resting in his house. But actually the word is sat. He was sitting in his house, the same word. When the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I sit in a house of cedar, but the ark of God sits in a tent. And that same word is used, sitting, sitting. So David is sitting in his cedar house. And it's a beautiful house, as we heard last week. But God, there the ark of God is sitting in a tent, and David is uncomfortable with the disparity between these two things. Here I am sitting in my cedar-paneled house, there is the ark of God sitting in a tent. He wants to do something about that. That's not right. That's not fitting. And so he goes to Nathan and he says, See now, I sit in a house of cedar, but the ark of God sits in a tent. Now, there's something that, that has happened here. And this is a moment where, David has, where God has granted David every success. I mean, things could not have be going better for David. And just in the previous chapter, he's been leaping and dancing before the Lord. So things are going well for him. But in the midst of that, it's a warning to us when things are going really well. In the midst of that, there was a distance that emerged between him and his God. And it's reflected in the fact that he's sitting in his house and the ark of God is sitting in a tent. It's almost as if they're like a married couple sleeping in separate bedrooms. And the way that David talks to Nathan reveals the distance in his relationship to God. Because he's not, he's not praying, he's not talking to God. He's talking about God to somebody else. And not even about God himself, the Ark of God. So David is talking about the Ark of God to Nathan and what he wants to do with the Ark of God. So that there is it, it's, in, it's become impersonal. There's a distance that has emerged between David and his God. And this calls the question to us, what's the nature of our relationship with, with our Heavenly Father today? What's our relationship with Christ? Has it become Impersonal? Has it become abstract or distanced? Do we find that we're talking about God? But we don't know that intimate and personal communion with God. And this happens sometimes. I notice it when I'm sharing the gospel with people. I find sometimes, and maybe this has been your experience, I'm sharing the gospel with a person, and I feel an odd distance with what I'm saying. I feel like I'm just talking about the gospel. And I'm trying to get the other person to see what I'm talking about. But I feel a strange distance with the words that I'm speaking. And that's what's happening with David here. He's talking about the ark of God. He's talking about God. Now, the word that God gives to Nathan is a word of rebuke. And it's a, it's, it's a word which reconciles David to himself. There's a certain distance there. Now Nathan, I want to say, Nathan barged into David's house where he's sitting there. And he said, listen to what God is saying. God is not an impersonal ark that is just sitting in a tent. Listen to what God is saying. And if you just consider, not just the promise of what God says to David in those verses, but consider how personal it is. God is speaking in the first person. He's the subject. David was treating him as the object, right? The ark. I'm going to do something for the ark. God says, no, no, no. I'm not the object of your worship. I'm not the passive object of your worship. You don't just do things for me and talk about me. He barges into David's house and he says, listen to me. And he speaks in the first person. And he says, I never said I wanted a house. I never said that. If you're listening to me, you'd know that. I've always dwelt in a tent. And I've dwelt in a tent because it means I can go with my people. I want to be with my people. Wherever they've gone, I've gone. I've gone with them. I've defended them. I've protected them. I've provided for them. And look what I've done for you. I took you from tending sheep. I made you to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. Remember that all that time in the wilderness. There was no need for paneled houses at that time. There was no need for a temple. I was with you there. You know that. And I went before you, and I delivered you from all your enemies, and I provided for you, I protected you, I defended you. Now I'm going to make your name great. Then God starts to speak in the future tense. I will make your name great. I will give my people a place of rest from their enemies. And notice that. David maybe is forgetting about the people. God hasn't forgotten about his people. I will give my people a rest a place of rest from their enemies i will make your throne an eternal throne i will establish your kingdom forever i will treat your son, your your offspring like my own sons i will love them i'll be with them and they will build a house for me notice how personal that is that address i i'm doing this i'm doing this i'm doing this remember what i've done And listen to what I'm going to do. So there's no distance now between David and between God. And David isn't thinking, well, the ark of God, what should we do with the ark of God? No, God has broken through that. He's speaking to him directly. Now David has to be thinking about what God has just said to him. And not thinking about, okay, what can I do for the ark of God? And God, here as he speaks to him, reminds David that I am a personal God. I am present. I am active. I speak. I command. I call. I promise. I redeem. I provide. I defend. I protect. I love. Remember that, David. Now, the question is how's David going to respond to this? And he responds by leaving his house. He's not going to sit in his house, he goes into the tent. And notice it doesn't say he went in to sit before the Ark of God. No, it just says he went in and he sat before the Lord. Now previously he was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now he's sitting before the Lord. But he recognizes, okay, it's not about the Ark. It's not about this passive object that I'm going to do something with. He's sitting before the Lord. He's heard the Lord. Now he sits before him. Now we're busy people. We live in a city like Toronto. We're all busy. We all have lots going on. We're busy at work. We work long hours, most of us. We've got all kinds of activities. Toronto's a busy place. We're busy people. And sometimes you hear people talking about, you know, I don't have much margin in my life. It's always go, 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 go. Now, David was busy. He was busy. But here what we learn is that we need to take time. We need to make time. Take time to sit before the Lord. Just sit before the Lord. This is what David does. And remember the account in the Gospels when Jesus came to visit Mary and Martha, those two sisters. Martha invited Jesus over for dinner. He accepted the invitation. Now, I understand, Martha, if, if the Lord was, if we'd invited the Lord to our house for dinner and he was coming, I would be busy making sure, okay, everything's, you know, we're going to put on a great meal. Everything's going to be clean. Everything's going to be just so. It's going to be ready. Jesus is coming. I think we understand Martha's concern. And when Jesus arrives, Martha's sister Mary goes and she sits down at the Lord's feet. That's what the gospel writer tells us. This is Luke chapter 10. Mary went and she sat at the Lord's feet and she listened to him. And meanwhile, Martha's busy in the kitchen. She's trying to get everything ready and she comes out and says, Mary, help me out here. We're going to, you know, the dinner's going to be late or it's going to be overcooked. I need your help. Lord, tell her to come and help me. And the text tells us that she was, she was distracted with much serving. But then the Lord rebukes, Martha, he says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But listen to what he says now, verse 42. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. You're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. One thing is necessary, Martha, and your sister knows it. She's sitting before me. One thing is necessary, to sit before the Lord. David knew that. David went and sat before the Lord. Mary knew that. She went and sat before the Lord. But we understand Martha. We get Martha. We're distracted by much serving. We're anxious. We're troubled about many things. And there are many things that give us Trouble, there are many things to be anxious about. And just think this morning about the various things that you are troubled about as you came here today. The various things that cause you anxiety. You may be uncertain about your future. That's typical for people living in Toronto. It's a hard place to live. You may not be sure that you can stay here. You're wondering about the future. Where are we going to live? Perhaps you're concerned about your health. You're waiting for test results. Or perhaps you're just getting older. Your health is deteriorating. You're concerned about that. You're anxious. You're troubled. Toronto is an expensive city to live in. You're concerned about your finances. You're troubled by that. Maybe you're having a hard time at work. There might be lots of pressure there. You may be concerned you're going to lose your job. You know, you feel like you're not measuring up. It's very competitive. You're anxious about your job. Maybe you've got difficult coworkers. workers. You know, every day you've got to go into the office and there's so-and-so there and, okay, I've got to navigate, you know, these office politics and how do I talk to this person? Can I just ignore this person? You know, it's a drag to go to work. We're anxious about that. We're troubled about that. Maybe you are a student, you're in school, you're you're worried about your studies, maybe your grades are slipping a bit, you're concerned about that, you've got math anxiety, that's a thing. Or maybe some of your classmates or your other students are giving you a hard time, you know, you're feeling left out, or a friend has betrayed you. There's lots to make us anxious, lots to be troubled about. Maybe every day you pull up, you know, the various blogs and social media outlets that you're following, and again and again, it's just more bad news, and you're just looking at our society and our culture and the changing values and the economy and, and politics. Well, there's lots to be anxious about there, lots to trouble us. Maybe you're just distracted. You know, you spend a lot of time just on YouTube, on Netflix, Just scrolling through social media. Maybe you're maybe you're troubled by the church. You know, people let you down here. You're disappointed by the church. And you have a hard time at work, and your hope is you come to church on a Sunday morning and you meet with your brothers and sisters in church. That's gonna be, you know, at least there's a place where I'll find some some comfort, some counsel, some relief, some encouragement, and then you don't get it here either. So there's lots to be anxious about. Jesus says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. It will not be taken from her. One thing is necessary. Sit before the Lord. Take time in the midst of all of this. Everything you're worried and concerned about, sit before the Lord. That's what David did. He went in and he sat before the Lord. And he didn't just sit there. He spoke. He talked. He talked to God. He spoke to God. He's not like he was before, just talking about the ark of God to Nathan. He goes and he sits before the Lord, and he talks. He talks to God. He prays. And if you look at his prayer, and you compare that to what God has just said, what God has just promised, you'll see there that David takes up the promises and the language of what God has said, and he speaks it back to to God. He imitates God. He repeats what God has just said to him. And that shows us what prayer is. Prayer is our response to God's word to us. Prayer is responsive speech. God speaks, and when we pray, we speak back to him. Now, how do we learn, how 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 does any of us learn how to talk? You know, I'm a native English speaker. I learned how to speak English because I listened to my parents And I picked it up. How do we learn to pray? We learn to pray by listening to our Heavenly Father. David has just heard his father speak to him. Then he comes back in and he repeats the words back to his Heavenly Father. He imitates him. And it's personal now. Very personal. I don't know if you noticed this as I was reading through the prayer, but he repeats Lord God a lot. O Lord my God. O Lord God of hosts. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord. Lord." Now, I've got a confession to make here. I'm, I get a little distracted when people are praying and they're constantly saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. Father, 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 every sentence. And I remember reading Charles Spurgeon when he's talking about, you know, when we pray in public, never repeat the name of the Lord too much, you know. The Lord's name is, he even says, the Lord's name is taken in vain when you just use it to like fill the fill the gap in your prayer. Okay, I get that. That's what David does here. Because he can't help but say the Lord's name because he's been restored to the Lord. He knows the Lord again in this intimate, personal relationship. So he can't help but say, to call God by his name. And it's very personal. He says, you, you, your, your, 45 times in a short prayer. It's personal. And he begins with this question. It's an amazing way to begin the prayer. Who am I? Who am I? I think David thought he knew who he was when he was in his cedar, his cedar house. But when Nathan burst in and declared the word of the Lord to him, all of a sudden David asked this question, who am I? Now, it's not that he's confused and he doesn't know who he is. He remembers who he is after hearing the word from the Lord. The Lord is not the object of my worship. I am the object of his love. That's what he knows. Who am I? That you would say such a thing to me, that you would do such great things for me, that you would make such a promise. Who am I? Now that's a question that our society is asking. It's a big question, the question of identity. Who am I? David knows who he is because he sits before the Lord. and He listens to the Lord. You know, his name means beloved. He remembers that as he sits before the Lord. I'm the beloved. You're the beloved. As he sits before before the Lord, he remembers that he is a dearly loved son of his heavenly father. His heavenly father is with him. His heavenly father is listening to him. Now David David wants to make a plea. He wants to make some petitions. He's going to ask God to keep his promises. But before he does that, he can't help but first pour forth praise. As soon as as David is sitting before the Lord and he opens up his mouth, the, the first thing to come out of his mouth is praise. And he praises God for his amazing grace. Now here's a little bit of trivia from church history. John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace... Many people think that he wrote that as kind of a reflection on his own life. You know, he was a slave trader and he was a wretch and he sings Amazing Grace who saved a wretch like me. But he didn't write that hymn at a moment of, you know, autobiographical reflection. This was a hymn that he wrote for his Wednesday evening Bible study. He had a Bible study every Wednesday evening. People would gather together in in the church and he would lead them through different books of the Bible. And every week he wrote a hymn for the passage that they were looking at. And so he would teach the scriptures, and then they would sing a hymn as a response to the text that they were reading. David wrote, or John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, in response to this prayer of David. He was leading his church through a Bible study. They came across, They came to this text. He taught the text, and then he wrote Amazing Grace in response to teaching on this text of scripture. And actually, you can take the hymn, and you can take this text and put them side by side. You can see how this text inspired the hymn. Amazing grace. That's what David is celebrating in this prayer. Amazing grace. Who am I that God would save a wretch like me? So David pours forth praise. He praises God for his presence, for his provision, for his protection. He praises God for his promises, for his word. He praises God that the promise that God has given him has revealed his heart. Just look at verse 21 there. I love that statement. This is what you have promised according to your heart. When we're reading the word of God, when we're reading his promises, that is a revelation of his heart to us. David praises him for that. He praises God for his greatness, for his grace. There's none like you. He praises God for his love for his people. That God has redeemed his people, that God has taken his people to himself to be with them forever. Well, it's the same for us. When we take time to sit before the Lord, we take time to meditate on His amazing grace towards us. And like Mary, we sit at the feet of Jesus. And we listen to His promises. And we listen to what He says to us. And we meditate upon His amazing grace. And we remember what Paul says in Romans 5, that at just the right time, when we were weak, when we were enemies of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and reconciled us to God. We remember that our Lord Jesus has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He redeemed us. He saved us from the judgment of God, the wrath of God for our sin. We remember that He leads us like a good shepherd. He knows us. He promises that we will never perish. He will give us eternal life. He will raise us up on the last day. And we will be with Him forever. He promises to give us the Holy Spirit and give us the Spirit without measure. He promises to give us His joy that it may be complete in us. He promises to give us His love that we may abide in His love. He promises to give us His peace. Remember what He says to His disciples after the the resurrection. My peace I give you. So we need to take time. One thing is necessary. Sit before the Lord. Remember his amazing grace. Meditate on his word, his promises. Now, as David does that, he is motivated then to pray. And notice what it says in verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. It's a revelation of the word of God that's been given to him. Saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. As he meditates on the promise of God, he finds he can then pray with boldness, pray with courage. And notice what is motivating and prompting his prayer here. It's not his circumstances, it's not its need, it's not because he's especially strong in his faith that he's able to pray. No, it's because God has spoken and God has promised. Therefore, I have courage to pray. The more we listen to the Word of God, the more we meditate on His promises and hear Him, that's going to well up in us a boldness, a courage to pray. And what does David pray? He prays God's very promises. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Now, He says he's praying with courage. We need to pray with the same courage. That means we pray the promises of God back to him. Lord, you have promised all these things. Do as you have promised. Do as you have spoken. So that's why whenever we pray, we always have the Bible open in front of us. Pray the scriptures. Pray the word of God back. When I I pray for the members of the church, I'll, I'll be reading the Bible, there'll be a verse that will stick out to me, and then I'll pray that verse for you. And I pray it courageously, I pray it with confidence, because God has said it. Do as you have spoken, David says. You have said that you will make my name great. Do it, make my name great. You have said that you will give your people rest from their enemies. You'll give them a place and give them rest from their enemies. Do it. You have said that you will establish my throne forever. Do it. Do it as you have promised. So he prays God's promises back to him. But he also prays because he he recognizes that as he looks outside of the tent where he's sitting before the Lord, the world around him doesn't reflect what God has said. The promises haven't yet been realized, they haven't yet been fulfilled. Now there is a tension between what God's word says and what we see around us. Sometimes it feels like a contradiction. God has said this. I look at my own life. I look at the world around me. It doesn't look anything like that. That's why we pray. When we pray, we stand in the gap between what God has said and promised And what we see in the world around us. We stand in the gap. We stand in the tension. And we pray boldly and courageously and say, Lord, you have said this. I don't see it here. Do it. Do it. That's bold prayer. Standing in the gap between what God has promised and what we see in our own lives and the world around us. That's why David prays, Lord, bless this house. Bless it. And that's what we're doing when we stand in the gap between what God has said and what we see in the world around us. We are calling for the the blessing on this. You have said this. I don't see it here. Bless this. Make it so. Now think about what, what Christ has promised us. Think about what he's promised the church. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, that he might present us to himself in splendor, holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle and then in the book of revelation in the second last chapter we read that the church the new jerusalem descends out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband that's the promise that's going to happen but, but look look around Are we sanctified? Are we pure and blameless? Are we prepared? Are we adorned as a bride for her husband? Not yet. And we all know that. It's pretty obvious. But this informs our prayer. Pray for the church. Pray for one another. Pray Ephesians 5. Pray Revelation 21. Lord bless your people. Make it so. Sanctify us. Remove the spots. Iron out the wrinkles. Prepare us. Adorn us for yourself. And then later in the book of Revelation, we see God's promise for the world. God promises to tabernacle among mankind. He will dwell among us. He will make all things new. It says in 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither sh- there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, that's the promise. But the world still suffers from sin and death. The world is still mourning. They're still crying. there's still pain. The former things remain. And so we pray, Lord, make all things new. So David prays with boldness. He's courageous in his prayer. But that's the end of chapter 7. That's why we need to hear chapter 7 and then chapter 8. Because we can't just leave David sitting in in the tent before the Lord praying. Because David doesn't, doesn't stay in the tent. He gets up. He goes out. He's heard the promise of God. He's been meditating upon those promises, upon that word. He praises God for it, and then he prays, Lord, fulfill your promise. Make it so. Sitting before the Lord, resting in the Lord, meditating and praising the Lord for his promises, and then praying boldly that God would do as he has spoken, has stirred him up to then act on the promises. And if we are sitting before the Lord, if we're a people who sit before the Lord, if we're a people who praise Him for His amazing grace, who plead with Him to fulfill His promises, we will be a people stirred up to action. And chapter 8 is action. There is a lot of action in chapter 8. David's a man of action. He's a man of action because he's a man who sits before the Lord. He rests in the Lord and so he is ready to serve the Lord. He's ready to act upon the Word of God, the promises of God. So sitting before the Lord isn't idleness. It's not wasting time. One thing is necessary, sit before the Lord. And if we sit before the Lord, we will rest in the Lord, and then we will be ready for action. And chapter 8 is really summarized in verses 11 to 13. So let's listen to those again. Verse 11 to 13. It's a summary of, of David's activity. These also, he's speaking of the, the gifts that he received, silver and gold and bronze from toy. These also, King David, dedicated to the Lord. I had a whole section of the sermon that I cut out about dedicating these things to the Lord. So maybe in a Q&A, we can talk about that. Dedicated to the Lord. These things also, King David, dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself. Now here's the importance of of seeing chapter 7 and chapter 8 side by side. In chapter 7, God promises to give a name to David. And David prays, Lord, make it so. And then David acts on the promise. And he goes out and he makes a name for himself. In chapter 7, God promised to give his people, Israel, rest from all their enemies. David prays, Lord, make it so. Give us rest from your enemies, just as you have promised. And then he acts on that. He acts on his prayer. He acts on his promise. He goes out, and he defeats Israel's enemies. And the significance of this list of enemies is geographical. To the west, the Philistines. To the east, the Moabites. To the south, the Edomites. To the north, Hadad Ezer. In all directions, David has given his people rest from their enemies because God promised it and he prayed for it. Now God also promised that David's offspring would build a house for God. This is the significance of taking in all this tribute, the plunder, because that silver, that gold, that bronze that was gathered up, it was collected, it was preserved, and it was used in Solomon's temple. God promised it, David prayed for it, And then he took plunder from the nations and set it aside so it would happen. So if we are a people who are sitting before the Lord and we are meditating on his promises, we're listening to his word and we're praying, Lord, make it so, then we will be a people like David who will be stirred up to then act on the promises. God promises it, we pray for it, and then we go out and we act on it. And we see this also in the book of Revelation. So yes, the Lord Jesus promises that He will sanctify us. He will wash us. He will make us holy and blameless. He will present us to Himself without uh, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. He promises that. In the book of Revelation, we see that John has a vision. It happens. The church is presented to, to Christ, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But then we read this in Reve- Revelation chapter 19. This is another vision of the same moment, the presentation of the bride to Christ. And all of heaven is rejoicing at the sight of the bride. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself Ready? Notice that. The bride has made herself ready. God has promised it. The church has been praying for it. The church makes herself ready. It was granted her her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice what it says about David. He had ministered with justice and equity. Righteous deeds. That's what the book of Revelation says about us. Yes, Christ will sanctify us. Yes, he gives us his spirit. His spirit is at work in us, cleansing us, purifying us. Through the work of the spirit, we will be presented to our Lord on the last day without spot or wrinkle. Even so, God's word says, prepare yourself for that day. Adorn yourself with righteous deeds. Like David, having heard the promise, having prayed for it, act on the promise, go out. Serve. Work. Now Revelation 21 gives us some of the works that we're called to do. God promises to one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. One day there will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And God will declare, I'm making all things new. Now right. For us to clothe ourselves in righteous deeds means that in the meantime we act on that promise. There are a lot of tears shed in this world. There's a lot of tears shed in this church. It means that we come alongside one another and we wipe away one another's tears. We are with one another as we are dying. We are with one another in our pain, in our crying, in our mourning. And if we are people who sit before the Lord and listen to his word and pray and we're attentive to him, we will be attentive to one another. We'll be aware of the needs of one another. And I have to say, it grieves me that there are many in our church that are, are hurting, they're in pain, they're crying, and they're alone in it. It's not because we don't care about one another. It's because we're distracted. We're busy. We're anxious and troubled about many things. Now, as a church, we want to love God. We want to love one another. We want to love the lost. Sitting before the Lord, listening to his promises, praying, that's loving God. And if we're doing that, we will be stirred up to love one another. the book of Revelation says that the bride has made herself ready. We need to make ourselves ready. We need to clothe ourselves in righteous deeds. And that means that we need to be aware of the hurts, the pains, the needs that each one of us has. And if we're sitting before the Lord and listening to him, we will be stirred up to sit alongside one another to listen to one another and to speak God's grace, his promises to one another. You know, Trevor's got a few copies in his office of this little book, The Promises of God or God's Promises. I think we should all have a copy of that book. And as we become aware of each other's needs, you know, it's just a helpful resource. Hey, brother, sister, I know you're struggling with this. Hear God's promise. Let's pray together. What can I do to help? So David acted on the promise of God. He acted on his prayer. We need to do the same. Now every Sunday we come to the Lord's table and this meal is an anticipation of that future marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an anticipation of that meal. That's why I think it's okay that we just get a little bit of bread and a little sip of wine because it's not the whole banquet just yet. It's just a little foretaste. But on that day, we know that the Lord will present us to himself in splendor. And as we come to this table and as we receive his bread, this bread, which is his body given for us, this cup, the blood of the new covenant, shed for you, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we come forward, we are reminded that we belong to him. He is our faithful Savior. David didn't go out and do all this himself. Twice, the text tells us, and the Lord gave David victory. And every Sunday we come to the Lord's Supper and we're reminded of that fact. The Lord gives us the victory. The Lord will present us to himself in splendor. And as we come to this meal, and as we rest in that hope before the Lord, we, we are stirred up then to go and act on that promise, to act in that hope, loving and serving one another. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.